right, well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you guys. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different because this is the first time that you're getting me by myself for the, I think, the last three months. So there's no interview today. But hey, everybody, my name is Ryan Polly. This is a show that I do frequently, try to do it every week to help you think deeply about Christianity and the Christian worldview and the issues of our culture. And normally I bring on some expert in some area related to the Christian worldview and give you the chance to interact with them. But uh, this week I want to discuss the topic of science in the Bible. I want to take your questions and there's no interview, but interviews are coming up. And so today what I want to talk about is this idea that uh, that the, the claims of the Bible are consistent with scientific observations. And the reason why this has kind of been on my mind is I actually recently I uh, was a guest on the Bellator Christie podcast uh, with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, and, uh, and they had me come on to talk about the Christian worldview and how it relates to science, especially the topic of evolution. We talked about different views of creation. We talked about how the Christian worldview then applies to this topic of evolution and understanding uh, different kinds of evolution. But the last question of their interview was how does the Christian worldview line up with science? Uh, what are ways in which the Christian worldview actually matches well with science? And and I and I as I kind of looked over that, I I, I went back to my textbook, uh, what I teach my high school students, uh, which is Understanding the Faith by Jeff Myers, produced by Summit Ministries, uh, and this actually gives six different ways in which uh, the Bible's claims are consistent with scientific observation. And I see that uh, a comment here has already come in on that the Bible says that the earth is flat. That question came in on the video that I posted yesterday, kind of getting guys to think about what are the questions you have when it comes to science in the Bible. So we'll definitely address uh, whether the Bible says the earth is flat. But I want to uh, first kind of maybe present a framework and again, I think this is going to help answer that question on whether the earth is flat. Uh, I think this is a, a good framework in which to kind of uh, think about this issue. And this is how I normally uh, teach this with students or whether I'm doing a lecture. And, and here's kind of the chart that I, I put up on the screen. Uh, here it is. I, I would say that the there are two books. These two books uh, are the two different types of revelation that God gives us. Uh, the first one being general revelation. Uh, this is the revelation that God has revealed to all people um, through nature. And then we also have special revelation. This is going to give us more specific information, uh, things like how you get to heaven and who Jesus is and that kind of stuff. And this is obviously in scripture, and this is God's uh, special revelation. Now, obviously, with both of these revelations coming from God, they should agree, right? God is not a God of contradiction. God is not a God that's in a lie. He's not going to make mistakes. And so his nature is going to agree with his word, his scripture. Um, and so what we have to recognize, though, then, is that science is our interpretation of nature. It is the best that we have, and we're doing our best to try to understand it. And we do make mistakes from time to time, but we're always trying to learn and gain a better understanding of nature. We also have to recognize that theology is our interpretation of Scripture. And guess what? In our theology, too, we often make mistakes from time to time, and we get things wrong. We don't have, uh, I don't have, a perfect theology, and we're doing our best to try to understand where, uh, what the Bible is saying, and how God has revealed himself to us. Now, the point here is this, is that where our science and our theology overlap, they should be in agreement. Because again, if we're 
understanding nature well, and we're understanding scripture well, and they are in agreement, our theology and our science are also going to be in agreement. Uh, the issue here, though, is when they disagree, uh, when it seems like they are on opposite sides, and then we have to understand that either we're doing our theology wrong, or we're doing our science wrong. Now, I think one mistake sometimes that Christians make is instead of that line, as you see right there, going between science and theology, oftentimes that line is actually going from scripture down to science. And we pit science against the Bible and we say, well, this is the word of God. This is what the Bible says. And therefore your science is wrong because we are viewing science through the lens of scripture. Uh, where I think that um, has... Uh, is mistaken is that we have to interpret scripture, right? We have our theology, we have our interpretation of scripture, and that is so valuable to recognize is that there are some things in the Bible that are very clear, but it's possible there are things in the Bible that we are misunderstanding, that we think is one way and it's actually a different way. And we are misunderstanding words, the context, the historical context or something there is incorrect. And, and I'll get to this here in a little bit, but as the comment kind of comes in, it says the Bible says the earth is flat. And again, the comment also said, you know, where does it say this? Um, you can go to a website and you can look up different Bible verses that talk about the earth being flat. And so the question that we're going to be looking at is, does it clearly say that? Or is there another possible interpretation for it? And so that's what we are going to be talking about here a little bit. Now, the second kind of framework that I want to think about as we discuss this issue of science and the Bible is that it's kind of like a courtroom case, right? That, that uh, there, is, uh, there are claims that people make of either the Bible is ridiculous and it's unscientific or, or, or either way, um, but then we need to find evidence to support the case. And we find evidence that is uh, making a, a conclusion more reasonable than not, or um, even, uh, you know, making it, you know, reasonable beyond, or uh, true beyond a reasonable doubt. And so, what we recognize and what I want to do here in the show is these are five or sorry, six claims of the Bible. These are six things that the Bible claims to be true about the nature of the world and how we got here and, and what it's like. And then we say, okay, well, is there any reason to believe that these claims are true? And as we are, are making more and more scientific observations, these observations are actually consistent with what the Bible claims. And so if you have a claim that the world is a certain way, and then you have evidence that is pointing and is consistent with that claim, there's good reason to believe that claim is true. And in fact, I would also say in uh, that these scientific evidences, I think, are also go against a naturalistic or an atheistic or a secular view of the world. And so uh, I'm going to be looking into... Um, these six different points. I'm going to kind of bring them up, discuss a few things. Again, I want to encourage you guys to send in your questions, your comments, um, your objections, and um, and uh, and again, keep the discussion fruitful here in this because again, our goal, my goal is to think deeply. And if we are not thinking deeply about the world around us, if we're not thinking deeply about Christianity, um, then we're, I don't think we're actually seeking after truth. And so hopefully we are truth seekers that are trying to truly think and, and see what the world is like. So the first thing, uh, first way in which I would say that the Bible's claims 
uh, are consistent with scientific observation is that there is evidence of design in nature, right? We see in the very beginning of scripture that God has designed and created the world to be a certain way. God has breathed life into people and he's made the world for the purpose that it is. And so we see that there is a designer clearly in scripture. That's what it's pointing to. Now, what do we see in science? Well, I think that we see the same thing in science. Even Richard Dawkins said something to the effect of, you know, we are, no, maybe it wasn't him. Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm forgetting this quote exactly. But someone said, you know, it's, it's, like we, it's like we're looking at something that has the appearance of design, but we have to remember that it's not design. Uh, and it's this idea that we have to keep telling ourselves it's there's not really any design here. I think it's difficult when you look at uh, the, the intricacy of the cell, and that the cell really does mimic a factory. And we recognize that factories cannot just exist on their own, that factories take incredible design to be able to build and produce and to work and function properly. When I was on a Maven immersive experience up to Berkeley, uh, we took the group of students up to the Jelly Belly factory up near San Francisco. Now, most of the Jelly Belly factory is automated. And seeing these machines that are able to pick out these bags of jelly beans and do some crazy things and, and sort them and, and do everything that they do, it is amazing. It blew my mind to see what the, the engineering that humans have created uh, to, to be able to produce jelly beans, this delicious candy that we enjoy. Now, we recognize that in order for these machines to work properly, in order for them to produce jelly beans that work, that, that taste good, and for in order to package them in a way that the package is sealed and fresh and then box it and, and all that kind of stuff, these machines take some crazy engineering. It takes brilliant minds to create. And I don't even have the mind. I don't have the engineering capability to be able to produce the machines that can do what these machines were doing at the Jelly Belly factory. And so if we see inside every cell of our body, if we see this, this factory, this powerhouse inside of the cells of our body, how much more does that, that mimic the factories that we see and point to a designer. We could say the same about the information inside of the DNA, the, the genetic code and the, the, the complex structure of, of, of DNA and the information that it produces and, and what guides and directs who we are and, and the very nature of, of, our, of our bodies is this incredible information, right? And many people point to that this genetic information is, is equivalent to language. Francis Collins, right, the head of the human genome project discusses it as being like the language of God, that it has to be in the perfect structure in order to uh, do what it is doing and do it properly. And if you mess it up, it has huge side effects. Again, we would never assume that there's a book without an author. Uh, and so we see this information inside of our genetic code and recognize uh, there needs to be an information giver. Scripture says that there's an information giver, that God has created life. Our scientific observation is connecting with that. And the third thing I think that we can point to is this idea of, of irreducible complexity. And I know this is, you know, uh, um, uh, debated and whatnot, but you look at something like the bacterial flagellum and the, the complex structures that we also see, similar to kind of that factory, that if you take a piece away, it ceases to function. And so this idea of it growing through slow, gradual process of evolution uh, doesn't seem to make sense. Instead, when we see a complex structure like the flagellum, which is very similar to a rotary motor, we recognize a rotary motor needs intelligent design. And this, there's this design in how the flagellum works. And this is consistent with the Bible's claims that there is a designer around us. 
I talked about this before, and I think this is fascinating. Is you know, there's the the YouTube series on the age of AI. In the first episode, uh, talks about uh, trying to create um, uh, artificial intelligence, right? Trying to create an avatar inside of a computer that is self-learning, and then also creating a robotic hand for people who have had their limbs amputated. And the fascinating thing is, both with the artificial intelligence, the the avatar in the computer, and with the robotic hands, these scientists are are talking about these top scientists in the world are talking about how they cannot recreate what we have. They, they can't, in all of their technology, cannot create a, a virtual brain that functions better than the human brain. They can't create a robotic hand that functions better than the human hand. And if we look at a robotic hand and say, look, how much design and intelligence is required for this, I think the same is true to even a far greater degree of the human hand, which functions far better. And so I think this is the first point um, that, uh, that, the, that scripture is clear that there is a designer of our universe, that God created all these things. And then we are now seeing scientific observations that are consistent with this, this point. And I think this is, again, a, a difficult position to hold for, for a secular view that says there is no designer. Well, then where does this design come from? And, and I think the, 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 the options of we got very lucky or we just, it just happened to be this way. Um, it, it's, it's, it's possible to get lucky once. It's possible to get lucky twice. But when it happens in everything that we see around us, from the vastness and the fine-tuning of our universe and the planets and everything, exactly the point that they need to be, from the intricacy and the information in our DNA to the, just the, the structure and the function of hands and bacterial flagellum, it really does point to and is consistent with this idea of the Bible having a designer. The second way in which um, uh, the the claims of the Bible are consistent with scientific observation is that something outside of our universe brought it into being. Now, I guess I'll kind of address the flat earth thing here um, about, you know, the creation of our universe and what it might look like. I'm not going to say a whole lot because uh, I'll make it pop up right up here uh, after it's done processing, but I'm going to show uh, the uh, the video uh, with William Lane Craig, the last live stream that I did with William Lane Craig. We talked about the Kalam cosmological argument. We went over objections against it and, and exactly what it says, but this idea that everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe needs a cause. And so again, scripture from the very beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's very clear biblically that God exists outside of our universe and then he created our universe. He brought our universe into being. And our modern scientific evidences are also pointing to the fact that our universe has a beginning and that something outside our universe brought it into being. Now, some may argue that that's another universe or that's the multiverse or, or that's something different. But the main point is, is that for thousands of years, scripture has pointed to this fact that our universe came into being, something outside of our universe created, and science is pointing the same way as well. And so we have things like the second law of thermodynamics, that we're running out of usable energy. And so if we're running out of usable energy and we have a finite amount of energy, well, then we can't have been running out of usable energy forever. There has to be a finite beginning to our universe. The expansion of the universe uh, points to this as well. If our universe is, is expanding, then if you hit reverse, it is going to contract until it has that point of singularity. And so this idea of our universe having a beginning is, is a huge point when we talk about uh, the claims of scripture lining up with scientific observation. Now, what might our universe be like? So one way in which, yes, uh, people do say the Bible's claims are different than scientific observation is that they say that uh, the Bible claims that the earth is flat. 
Um, now, again, there's a lot of different ways that we can address this, uh, a lot of verses that we can go over, and, and really, um, uh, the, you could spend a whole hour on this. In fact, you could spend more time. So here's what uh, I'm going to do again, kind of pointing to our chart. What we want to understand is we, we recognize that if science says the earth is round, if, if the Bible, we think, our, or if science says our Bible, the earth is round, and our theology is saying that, that, that um, the earth is flat, well, then one of them has to be wrong. And so we have to go, okay, is there any reason to believe that science is wrong or is there any reason to believe uh, that our theology is wrong? Now, um, I've watched quite a few, uh, I watched some debates and some comments both by flat earthers and by globe earthers and, uh, and scientists and trying to have a better understanding of what people actually believe on this. And what I found is that, you know, among the flat earth community, one consistent position is that the earth is flat. Um, other than that, there are a vast number of views of exactly um, is, uh, some will say, and you know, Mark Sargent is, is one of, uh, I guess, one of the leading flat earthers, one of the most vocal. And uh, his view is that we all live inside of a dome and that every planet, the sun, the moon, everything is a projection screen, right? It's kind of like an HD projection screen. Like if you're inside of a planetarium and you look up and you see all these stars and planets moving above you, they're not actually real. It's just a projection screen. And so we're actually living inside of this dome. Others may understand though, there might be a sun and a moon that are real, not just projections, but are real, uh, but function in different ways. And so there's definitely gonna be some disagreement here. But a general a rule of thumb is uh, here, <clears throat> this is often how it is portrayed of, of how the earth has been flattened. Again, this is not gonna be consistent with every single person, but hopefully it, it, it gives you an idea that, that you take from the South Pole, from Antarctica, and then you kind of stretch that out. So as you see around the edges there, uh, Antarctica kind of goes around the entire globe on the edges. Uh, and then the North Pole there being the top and the center and everything else is kind of flattened out. Now, a couple of interesting things uh, in this model, and again, I'm not a scientist, but I've talked to some and I've watched debates with some and, and trying to understand it. So first kind of from a scientific perspective and then a biblical perspective. One is um, I've had Jeff Swerink on the show a few times, and uh, and he's a scientist, and he's doing a research project at UCLA where he is building a balloon project that is going to fly around Antarctica. Well, that would be very difficult if Antarctica is on the edge of the flattened disk, and he has to fly it around the entire disk. That balloon would be flying for a very long time. Instead, I think he said he could fly his balloon around entire Antarctica in a much, much shorter period of time. You see, one reason why scientists um, can, I guess, know or have strong confidence that the earth is round is that we can make predictions of how certain things will function based on a globe-shaped earth and then also test it. And guess what? The tests come back and they're consistent with what we predict uh, versus um, if you predict uh, that the Antarctica is a small is a smaller portion of just the bottom of a globe, and then you try to fly a balloon around it, it doesn't work, uh, that is going to create some issues. Issues. Um, you can also look at, at gravity, and you can look at different predictions, and one way that we know uh, science is that it, it uh, again, it, we make these predictions based on the Earth being a globe, and they are consistent. The other issue is kind of just, I mean, think about, you know, planes flying. Like, I, I watched a YouTube video where a guy has answers to this, but again, if you're, uh, if you're flying to um, you know, let's say from Canada over to Russia, you could just go right over the top. Uh, why would a plane go all the way around uh, and kind of use that extra gas? So just a, a couple things to think about there um, on just how kind of the functionally it would work. And so 
what I think is that there are good reasons, scientifically, there are honest Christian scientists that, um, that put forth this idea that the Earth is a globe and that it is pretty straightforward. I mean, again, you, we have pictures from outer space of the globe. Now, of course, flat earthers are going to deny that, and I see in the comments already that NASA is lies, uh, but this is one thing that we have to think about. Uh, if NASA is lying, you have thousands, tens of thousands of people in on this huge conspiracy. Uh, in fact, we just, you know, SpaceX just launched. We have satellites. Satellites wouldn't function in the way that they function uh, if the Earth is flat. And so how, does, how do all the satellites function and all the companies that are launching satellites and all these kind of things are questions that we have to come up with. So I think that there are good reasons scientifically uh, to believe that the Earth is a globe. Now, how do we match that with scripture? Well, I don't have time today to go through all of the biblical reasons and the scriptures for it. And so actually in the description below, I posted a link to a video by Mike Winger. Uh, he took an hour and a half, I believe, and he went only over the biblical case for a flat earth. And he looked at the scriptures uh, that are used to support it and an explanation of those passages. He didn't talk about the science or conspiracy theories or that kind of thing, just simply what does the Bible say? And can you make a case for flat earth from scripture? And so what we have to see is that when the earth says, or sorry, when the scripture says things like people come from all the four corners of the earth or from the ends of the earth, well, how does the earth have ends if it's a globe? And so we take these things to be literal. Well, if the earth, it says the Bible it sits on a foundation, the earth has ends, uh, these four corners and these sort of things. Well, we don't take the Bible literally consistently at the same time where it says Jesus is a door. Well, we don't recognize he's actually a door. We recognize that there is this metaphorical language that we use. And so one thing I would say in my response to a lot of these passages is that when we look at these passages, it uses language based on our observation, phenomenological languages based on our observation, right? Where scripture talks about the, the sun rising and the sun setting. And we still use that language today but we don't think the sun is actually rising and setting, right? I don't think, maybe I'm making a guess here because I don't know for sure, but even flat earthers would say uh, that, uh, again, I guess the ideas are different with how the, the earth is going to work in the dome or whatnot, but no one here believes, even the strict biblical literists believe that the earth is the center of our solar system and that the sun is going around us. Well, but that seems to be what scripture says. Yes, but what we recognized, and it's coming back to this chart, when we thought that the Bible is saying that the earth is the center and the sun is going around us, and science is saying that the sun is the center and we're going around it, we recognize there's a problem. And then we realize that our theology, not scripture was wrong, but our interpretation was wrong, and that this is language of observation, phenomenological language, where we still say that the sun rises and sets, even though we know that's not true that we are moving around the sun. And no one wakes up in the morning and says, wow, what beautiful earth rotation this morning. <laughs> we don't do that. And so we still use this language, even though we know it not to be literally true. Uh, the second thing is, I think scripture is, is using language uh, where we talk about, man, people came from everywhere. Uh, they came from all the corners of the globe. It's like, no, they, what we're talking about is just all the parts. Uh, they came from all places because there's also a place, and Mike Winger points this out in his video, uh, in the Psalms where it says, all the ends of the earth praise God. Well, if we're going to take that literally, then the, the edges of earth are praising God. Um, rather than all the ends of the earth, it's including everything. The everyone everywhere is praising God. And so my short response to this, since we do have to move on, is, well, one, 
go click in the link below and watch the hour and a half video where Mike Winger discusses all the biblical passages and the biblical case for this. And to where I think that you could say, look, the, the passage, passages in scripture easily have another interpretation. It's based on language of observation. It's based on kind of just generic language where we talk about coming from everywhere. Uh, we can easily see how this can be interpreted differently. The scientific evidence is very good. And so we can ma make these consistent and easily reconcile this problem uh, by pointing out that the earth is a sphere. Yeah, that's all I'll say there on that one. Um, number three, the third way in which I think uh, the, the claims of the Bible are consistent with the scientific observations is that we have observed in science that life does not come from non-life. We see in scripture, again, very clearly in, in the beginning of scripture, that it's God, a living being who has created life. It's God who breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve. And we see that mechanisms like mutation and natural selection, yes, they provide diversification, they provide different types of animals, and we'll talk about that later. But how did the whole process begin? Even if evolution is true, how, where and how did the whole process begin? Life has never been observed to have arisen from non-life. And I've listened to some very interesting interviews lately on the Justin Brierley Unbelievable Show on the origin of life problem. And scientists will say, hey, yeah, we don't know. And this is, again, hey, let's keep looking. Let's keep searching. Let's see if we can figure it out. But right now, science is clearly saying every test we've ever made, we are not producing life from non-living things. And again, even if we did, this maybe seems like a cop-out, but even if we did, a scientist is then doing it. A scientist is producing it. And so if a scientist produces life in a lab from non-living, what that shows is that you can make something non-living into living with the help of an external intelligent agent. That still doesn't say that by purely naturalistic processes, it is possible. And so, you know, there's different views within a secular view, like spontaneous generation, uh, that life just spontaneously ge was generated, you know, maybe a primordial soup. Uh, there's, uh, there's, you know, Miller-Urey experiment that seems to kind of try to c connect this. But again, uh, that had some issues as they used the wrong materials. Um, there's also uh, panspermia, where maybe life came from outer space. But then the question is, well, where did the life come from that came from outer space? And so what we see is that, look, you take something non-living and give it time, it's just going to stay non-living. Rocks don't produce life. These things don't happen. What we do see and is consistent with our observation is that living things can produce living things, right? Living things can produce seeds that produce more living things, or a living human can produce another living human through procreation. And so this idea is consistent where scripture said, no, it was a living being that brought life into existence. And what we see in science saying that life does not come from non-life, life only comes from life, is consistent with the biblical understanding of the world. Next one, number five, is that there is intention and order in creation. Intention and order in creation. Again, if you have any questions, any comments, any other pushback on this, I would love to take your questions during the discussion or at the end. And again, there's a book giveaway uh, here in a bit. But there is intention and order in creation. Again, this kind of goes along with the design argument. From the beginning, why is God creating? God is creating a world for the purpose in which human beings are in relationship with him. I guess this is number four. Uh, human beings are in relationship with him. Everything is designed around that purpose of creating a place uh, to demonstrate his glory and for human beings to experience uh, 
that relationship, that there is a reason for why things are created. And when we look at the world around us, we, we see this to be true, that, that there are, there's a, a function, there is a purpose, there is a order, and there's intention in what has been created. Again, the same thing I think is true when uh, looking at DNA. Uh, it is the product of intelligence. It's, it's similar. Uh, it's analogous to human languages, which we know is the product of an intelligent mind. It's the language of God. And so when we see the observations in astronomy of that the locations of planets are actually there and necessary for life to be protected. When we look at the fine tuning and this privileged planet status, that we are in the right type of galaxy, in the right place in that galaxy, that if we are closer to the center or further away from the center, we would not be able to exist. And then we are the right distance from our host star and we have the right kind of moon. And if the moon was closer or further, we wouldn't exist. And everything is pointing to this idea that Earth has the perfect parameters. It is this privileged place. It is a special place for the purpose of life. And the Bible clearly points to that being true as well, way before we knew of the scientific discoveries pointing to the uniqueness and specialness of Earth. That We haven't found these other planets that are capable of, of um, uh, maintaining life, advanced life. Uh, there's something unique and special about Earth, and Scripture clearly says that to be true. And so I think this is the fourth piece where we're saying, look, here are four different kind of predictions or four different claims the Bible makes, and our science is supporting these claims. Rather than saying a, kind of a different response, maybe we just got lucky. Number five uh, is that human humanity is the apex of creation, that humans came last. I just, I find this fascinating. Again, in Genesis 1, it lays out the creation of count of what happened, you know, plants coming and then animals coming and then humans coming. And now in our scientific understanding and looking at fossil records, we understand the same to be true, that humans were not first and then animals came along later, uh, but that humans, even in evolution, humans evolved from animals. And then there's a more basic, simple life before that. And so we see even a consistency in the order of creation that Genesis puts forth and in our scientific observation that human beings are the end of creation. We also have interesting points of that God created humans last with his image, unique, special, and valuable, and then gave them the command to care for creation, to take care of his creation, to steward his creation and rule over it. We find even within secular worldviews, people saying, hey, you need to take care of the planet. We need to recycle. We need to do these things. And we need to take care of the creation. Why? Why should I take care of this planet? If we are just kind of here by accident, now maybe I, I want to make it last longer, make it better for me. But again, this objective standard by saying you should take care of the planet. Well, why? Is that just your opinion? Or is there actually something unique and special about this planet and us as people who are supposed to be the ones taking care of it? From the very beginnings of Genesis, God is clearly pointing out that we are the final act. We are the unique individuals made in his image and given the responsibility to steward his creation. And we see that to be true in the cries of people, uh, the cries of global warming, the cries of the things around us that we need to be caring for this planet, uh, as well as uh, and that is consistent with what we see. And again, as I've talked about with some of the other arguments within this, we also see this idea that, that the universe contains all the necessary properties of making intelligent life inevitable. Um, 
it, it is, it is, um, one scientist says here, uh, Robert Jastrow, highly regarded astronomer, physicist, and cosmologist, he says the anthropic principle, the idea that the universe contains all the properties that make the existence of intelligent life inevitable, the anthropic principle is the most interesting development next to the proof of creation. And it is even more interesting because it seems to say that science itself has proven as a hard fact that this universe was made, was designed for man to live in. It is a very theistic result, right? Now, he's not a Christian. And I think this is very interesting. I think he's an agnostic. Uh, this is interesting is that, that, that it looks like everything is designed for the purpose of man to live in, that man is the apex of creation, that man is the unique, the special one. And that clearly is a biblical principle. I, I think it, it's very difficult from a secular view to hold up the dignity and the value and the uniqueness of humans. That we are just another animal. We are, um, we're just another set of complex cells put together. And you can try to say, well, we're more intelligent and therefore we are, that you should protect us. But again, that seems to create this weird view where our value comes from these extrinsic qualities uh, that change. And so, hey, I'm more intelligent than a five-year-old. Does that mean I'm more valuable than a five-year-old? Well, of course not. That there's this inherent dignity and value within human beings that doesn't depend on your race, which is a huge thing that we're talking about today that in our culture, that your value does not depend on your race. Your value does not depend on where you were born. Your value does not depend on how tall you are or short you are or how strong you are or on your gender, that there's this inherent dignity and value to humans because you are human. The biblical case gives a clear understanding of why that is true. I think it is very difficult, in fact, impossible to have a foundation of human value. You can believe that there's human value and not have a Christian understanding, but I don't think that you have a foundation to justify why there is this equal inherent human value independent of these factors. And so you just say, what's unique about humans? Well, we're just smarter than the rest of the animals. Well, I'm smarter than some people and some of you are smarter than me. Does that change our value? Well, no. Okay, so then what is our value dependent on? Now, um, the last point, as we work through these six ways in which the Bible is consistent with scientific observation is that there are limits to change in nature. And this is kind of the main one that I want to talk about. And so I'll kind of spend the time here discussing this and then taking again your questions at the end. Um, but there are limits to change in nature. And what we recognize and what we have to do when we're talking about evolution and whether you believe in evolution or you don't, I think that, that we have to come to a, some basic understanding. And the first thing is, well, what do we mean by evolution? We have to recognize that the word evolution has different definitions, right? Evolution can just mean change over time. You know, I've evolved from a, from a baby to now, right? We talk about the evolution of dance and the evolution of cars and phones and, and whatnot. And so if we're talking about change over time, count me in, I'm an evolutionist. If you're talking about small genetic changes within a species, well, that is a proven fact too, microevolution. That uh, you can breed one kind of dog with a different kind of dog and you get a new kind of dog. I'm a small genetic change from my parents, but I'm still human, right? This would be, again, I think a scientifically proven fact. This is true. And uh, 
I'm an evolutionist if this is what you mean. The difference though is that many times when we talk about this, we're talking about macroevolution or Darwinian evolution or neo-Darwinian evolution or common ancestry. And this is the idea that again, small genetic changes add up over time to produce an entirely new species, a new kind. Now, evolutionists will often say, well, microevolution is macro just on a larger timeline. So, right, if here's the timeline of, of macroevolution from one species to a new species, well, if you take a small chunk out of that, yeah, then you're going to see microevolution small changes. I would say, no, these are not the same, though, because micro says that it's always going to stay within the species. There are small changes, but it's going to stay within the gene pool of that species. Macro says, no, it's producing an entirely new species. And so there is a difference between these views. And so again, do we see evidence in science? Are there scientific observations that point to uh, that we actually see changes producing new species? And I would say no. And it's not only because we don't have enough time, right? That would just be ridiculous to say, we don't see it because, well, we're only looking at 100 years. It's like, no, it's not just because we don't have enough time. But it's, in fact, I think it, we, we are seeing the opposite. Uh, when you look at Darwin's finches, and again, this is kind of a, a stepping back. If you're having a conversation on evolution with someone, I've talked about this a lot, but I haven't talked about it for a while. The reason why you want to define your terms first is because then when you ask what is the evidence that supports evolution, you want to make sure that evidence actually supports the same definition of evolution that they are supporting. So oftentimes they say, look, common ancestry is true. How did you come to that conclusion? There's the tactics question with Greg Kokel. How did you come to that conclusion? And the answer is, well, look at Darwin's finches. Okay, let's take a step back. What do Darwin's finches support? It supports adaptation. It supports mutations. It supports that, that, that the beaks within, uh, that have, or sorry, birds with a certain type of beak, that as the seasons change, that uh, birds with a certain shape of beak survive better. Okay, but what was it before the beak change? Well, it was a finch. What was it after the beak change? It was a finch. This is microevolution. This is simply proof of adaptation and natural selection. This is not proof of macroevolution. It doesn't support common ancestry. It supports micro. I'm cool with micro. And so it's important to recognize uh, this definition when we then look at evidence. Um, again, I want to read a couple comments. Um, zoologists. Uh, Pierre-Paul Grasset, after studying the mutations in bacteria and viruses, again, that's another one, if bacteria can mutate and become antibiotic resistance, resistant. Okay, what was it before it mutated? Bacteria. What is it after it mutated? Bacteria. Okay, that's microevolution. You have a, a change where now it's antibiotic resistant, but it's still bacteria. But here's what um, he said. He said, what is the use, um, actually, Oh yeah, what is the use of their unceasing mutations if they do not change? In some, the mutations of bacteria and viruses are merely hereditary fluctuations around a median position, a swing to the right, a swing to the left, but no final evolutionary effect. Uh, the U.S. National Academy of Science member biologist Lynn Margulis maintained that new mutations don't create new species, they create offspring that are impaired. And we see this with like four-winged fruit flies, another kind of evidence revolution, is that we can mutate these creatures and get them to have a change, but oftentimes that change does not create a new species. It creates offspring that are impaired, that has uh, an issue. Um, her explanation continues, and she says, mutations, in summary, tend to induce sickness, death, or deficiencies. 
no evidence, and again, this is from the U.S. National Academy of Science, no evidence in the vast literature of hereditary changes shows unambiguous evidence that random mutation itself with geographical isolation of populations leads to speciation or new species. So I think this is what we, we recognize is this issue with random genetic mutation and natural selection now producing this macro evolution. There's a limit to what we can change in nature. And then we see this as well in the fossil records, is that we see in the fossil record that we don't have this tree of life where everything is connected. In fact, what many are putting forth now is what they call the, the lawn, right? Where you have these different sprouts, uh, blades of grass that are not connected below the surface and then can change slightly and very slightly from there. It's an evolutionary lawn is what many are putting forth. And um, I think one strong piece of evidence for this is the Cambrian explosion. And I think that this is powerful. So not only in my position on Christianity and science, there's a couple things. One is I think that the claims of the Bible, as I've shown here, six that are consistent with the scientific observations that we see. Number two is that I've also never seen a piece of evidence that clearly contradicts scripture or even clearly proves evolution. In my view, every piece of evidence that is in support of evolution is either one, supporting microevolution, not macro, or two, can just as easily, if not better, be explained by a common creator. How do we explain similar bone structures? Well, can a common creator make similar bone structures? Of course. Well, why not common creator? Often it's because we start with the idea God doesn't exist. Now, how do you explain this? So I think similar bone structures, similar DNA, you know, the homology and, and whatnot, all of that can easily be explained by a common creator rather than a common ancestor. The third reason as well why I hold to Christianity, so again, Bible's claims are consistent. Uh, there's no evidence going against it or even clearly in support of evolution without it being easily explained by a common creator. And the third one is I think there's actually evidence against evolution being the Cambrian explosion, right? Even if you take the scientific dating methods, even if you hold to a young earth, just for the sake of argument, even if you accepted the scientific dating method, we understand that, as I pull it up here, uh, the Cambrian explosion, of course I lost where it is. Why, there it is. Okay. The Cambrian explosion, uh, which is, you know, a point in time about 540 million years ago or so is where the, uh, the majority of body structures, the majority of animal phyla came into existence in a very short period of time, about a two to three million year window, not enough time to evolve these complex structures. The other interesting thing is that these structures appear in a short time window with no fossil evidence or history in the fossil record of them existing prior. In The Blind Watchmaker, Richard Dawkins uh, puts it this way, that there's these huge gaps in the fossil record. He says, for example, the Cambrian strata of rocks, vintage about 600 million years, are the oldest ones in which we find most of the major invertebrate groups. And we find many of them already in an advanced state of evolution. The very first time they appear, it is though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Now, what's funny is then he, in the very next sentence, he says, needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting has delighted creationists. True. What he's pointing out, in, and I'll finish this quote here in a second, what he's pointing out is that in the Cambrian explosion, we see animals appearing in an already advanced state in a complex body structure 
with no evidence of their existing before, the first time that they appear, they're complex. <coughs> and it's almost as if they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Well, the Bible says they were planted there. He's saying our scientific observation makes it look like they were just planted there. To me, that's another way in which the Bible's claims is consistent with, with science. Now, the Bible doesn't claim that the animals were planted, the fossils were planted in the ground, but the Bible's claims is that God created the animals uniquely, individually, in their current form, and so they're complex the moment they were created, they die, and you're gonna see the first thing as being complex. Now, Dawkins continues in The Blind Watchmaker and says, evolutionists of all stripe believe, however, that this really does not represent a very large gap in the fossil record, a gap that is simply due to the fact that for some reason, very few fossils have lasted from periods before 600 million years ago. One good reason might be that many of these animals had only soft body parts in their bodies and no shells or bones to fossilize. If you're a creationist, you may think that this is special pleading. My point here is that when we are talking about gaps of this magnitude, there is no difference whatsoever in the interpretation of punctuationists or gradualists. Both schools of thought despise so-called scientific creationists equally, and both agree that the major gaps are real and that they are true imperfections in the fossil record. Both schools of thought agree that the only alternative explanation of the sudden appearance of so many complex animal types in the Cambrian era is divine creation, and both would reject this alternative. So again, he's saying no matter what you are kind of on the evolutionary side, you're going to reject the creationist view. The question is why? If this is what we're observing in science, why? Now he mentions, well, maybe they had soft body structures and then they didn't have anything to fossilize. Well, this is what's super cool and I've talked about before is that back in 2019, there was a fossil discovery in the Hubei province of China where they discovered about 20,000 fossils. And what was unique about this is that they found like jellyfish and fossilized creatures that we've never found fossilized before in the Cambrian strata. These are soft body creatures that fossilized at about 420 or so million or 520 million years ago. And so we do have now evidence within the last year that soft body creatures were fossilized and these jellyfish that were fossilized 520 million years ago are the consistent body plan of the jellyfish that we see today. And the article, uh, one article that was posted on the BBC uh, discussing this um, this discovery in China last year in 2019, talked about it, and one of the scientists said, it's a, he made the quote of, it's as if these things all happen in a singular event. Again, the Bible claims they did happen in a singular event, that these animals are created by God in their current form, and our scientific observation is lining up with that. And so, to me, I think not only Again, to, to kind of summarize, not only is there good reason to believe that, um, that uh, evolution is, is false, I think there's good evidence against it, one being the Cambrian explosion, another being that the origin of life creates huge problems, and so we have huge problems with the theory of evolution. I think that we have uh, good explanations if you grant that there's a creator, if you grant a, a, a theistic worldview, and I think there's good reason to believe that a theistic worldview is true. Talked about that with my interview with William Lane Craig on arguments for the existence of God. Um, but then also we see the Bible thousands of years ago making claims about the world. And now we're seeing that our observations in science are consistent with those claims. And so we have good reason to say, not only is this just a claim, but this claim is based on evidence. And there's good reasons to believe in that creationist view. We're not ignorant. We're not dumb. We're not rejecting science rejectors. Uh, I think that there is good reason for us to stand firm in our views of God creating uh, the universe.
Uh, so let me go through um, these um, uh, questions and comments that came in. Yeah, common ancestry is often referred to that all living things have a common ancestor. And so that um, our common ancestor uh, between apes and humans is that there's some sort of ape-like creature uh, that is our common ancestor as well. And so often this is uh, language that has been used uh, when talking about evolution. Yeah, you could also say that Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are our common ancestors, and that's where God started everything, that they're the first historical beings. Um, but just know that, yes, that definition does have uh, a few different um, understandings, depending, I guess, on the community uh, that you are part of. All right, Susan, thanks for sending this. What advice would you give Christian students in public schools that are learning about evolution? And can they process the information and not feel they are believing less in God? This is a great question. Um, and, and to me, one of the most encouraging things, and the reason why I talk about science and evolution the most and why I enjoy studying it is because it's such a big issue with students. And so to me, when I can present a kind of a tactical approach to evolution and present these questions, I see such a relief on uh, students and they say, well, I can finally kind of more rest easier and try to reconcile these ideas. Now, one thing that creates a lot of difficulties is that when the church presents this idea that you have to be a young earth creationist believing everything is 6,000 years old, and then in science class, we're learning about evolution and that the earth is old. Now, um, I am open about this and, and I will discuss my reasons if I need to on a later show, but I, I hold to that our earth is old as well. I'm an old earth creationist or progressive creationist. And I see a lot of times just simply presenting this idea that there are different views of creation. And I teach this in my class and I teach the arguments for a young earth. I teach the arguments for an old earth and let the students decide. And I think just them having this understanding, oh, there's a different way, again, to interpret scripture. There's a possible interpretation that doesn't devalue the authority of scripture, the truth of scripture, um, that actually is more, as lines up with science, again, then that issue kind of dissolves on its own. And so with the advice I give to Christian students in public schools is one, listen cl clearly, listen carefully. I wish I had more classes on evolution because I want to know the best information there is. The second thing I would say is to ask good questions. If your teacher is teaching you about evolution, there's nothing wrong with asking questions about evolution. Now, if you stand up in class and go, I'm a creationist, this is all false, this is dumb, you're obviously going to create some problems. I recently had an interview with Holly Ordway, who talked about as she was an atheist professor that would criticize Christianity. And I asked, well, what should Christian students have done in your class? She goes, if they come in during office hours, that's awesome. Or if they ask questions that are related to the topic, that's awesome. But if they try to get on a soapbox and just talk about Christianity, that she would shut that down because, again, the classroom is a place that needs to learn. And so I would encourage Christian students in public schools to ask good questions. If they're teaching about evolution, again, join me for my discussion with Greg Kokel on tactics. These are the good questions of, okay, how did you come to that conclusion? What evidence do we have to support that? How does this point to macroevolution? These are questions I think that are good to ask uh, that the teacher should be able to respond to because they're teaching it. And you're asking more about what the teacher is teaching rather than just saying that they're wrong. And then secondly, I would then go and I would get books. Um, I would get, you know, Darwin's Doubt. I would get uh, the, these books by Hugh Ross and Reasons to Believe and, 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 or come on and ask me questions and, and to say, okay, well, then how would a Christian explain this? Here's what they're teaching in class. What would be a Christian explanation for this? And I think that there are ways in which we can understand it. And then as I kind of pointed out during the show, um, really think through, is the evidence they are presenting evidence or proof of microevolution or macro? And I really believe that the questions of one, is this evidence of micro? Okay, cool. I accept it. No problem. I don't have to have it take an issue with that. And the secondly is, 
Could this also be the result of a common creator rather than a common ancestor? I think the answer to that is absolutely yes as well. And so I think that these sometimes you can say, okay, I can see why someone would hold evolution. Not saying that all evolutionists believe this, but I can see why they would hold to it if they don't believe that there's a creator. What's the next best explanation? What well, has to be some kind of evolution? And so these uh, hopefully um, are helpful in kind of some advice that I would give uh, for students in public schools learning about evolution. Learn it well. Know the information that they present so that when you stand up against it, you can actually stand, do so credibly, showing that you have thought it through. Um, great question. Thank you so much for that. Um, all right, the last question that came in uh, on the video from yesterday was, um, is faith measurable? Um, and, and here it says, like Jesus talking about the disciples having little faith or faith of a mustard seed. And this is from uh, Mariam. Um, thank you for sending this one in as well. Um, and I would say, yes, it is. Uh, it maybe is more difficult, as you said, is, is it separated from the five senses? Um, the biblical definition of faith that I present is, is trust. Trusting in things we have good reason to believe are true. And so I would say that, yes, we can trust and that we can measure that trust. You can kind of tell when someone trusts you more or trusts you less. Uh, they give you the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you trust them to do certain things. You're not always watching over their shoulder when they're doing a project. You can just let them be because you trust them. And so we see as you begin to trust kids more, parents are trusting their kids more and giving them more freedoms. Uh, and so we definitely see, it's, it's difficult maybe to sense, but we definitely can see ways in which when you don't trust someone very much versus you trust them a lot, that just looks different. And so I think that that would be a way to measure faith because faith is trusting in God. Uh, how is someone trusting in God? Um, are they panicking and going, everything is ruined every time something bad happens? Or even like my interview with Clay Jones, when he was diagnosed with cancer, he prayed and said, God, you are sovereign. You are still good. You are in control and, and, and defeated that. And he talked about that example. And so where do we go when those difficult things ha happen? Can we say, I trust in the Lord. He is my strength and I will make it through. Or do we go, ah, I'm out. This is crazy. And it shows that we don't really have this deep faith, this deep, deep trust in God. And so I think that's one way in which we can uh, measure faith. I think another way, you know, we can talk about it is that when you have faith in God, when you trust in him and you've put your life in him, uh, how much are you wanting to be with him? How much are you, is your life revolving around him? Um, is he the focus? And so I think that you can kind of tell the, the depth of someone's faith and, and the level in which their commitment is, is, is the time that they spent with Christ, the, the way in which they speak about Christ and how it is uh, affecting the, the everyday decisions or is it, I just go to church on Sunday. And so I think there's, there, there are some difficult, di different ways, although difficult, uh, to, to measure faith where Jesus can then say, you know, you have little faith um, or the faith of a mustard seed that then grows uh, where uh, we can have a stronger, deeper faith, a deeper trust in who God is in the difficult times. I think that is the really the test of our faith, right? Is the times of difficulty that we go through. So um, those are some great questions. Thank you guys um, for, for joining. Again, there is no live stream next week. I'm going to be on vacation. I'll try to put out a few short videos. But again, July 1st with Christopher Yuan talking about holy sexuality in the gospel is going to be the next stream. I encourage you guys to subscribe, check that out, um, and do all that fun stuff. And so you don't miss those interviews. I guess it's fun stuff to subscribe. I don't know. I'm just saying things now, but I should probably sign off. God bless. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Uh, think deeply because Christ and God and Christianity is something worth thinking about. See you guys. To follow your love will guide my